Prospect Lives. Seven Voices on Modern Britain. It's the most dramatic spectator event sailing has ever invented. A typical Friday night for me entails alcohol and carnage. Jeremy Clarkson has done extraordinary things for UK farming. I'm sure that just telling people to exercise is futile. I felt something like a high-pressure system of love and grief moving outwards. I assume that any man in the sex industry was automatically out for sex. Welcome to Prospect Lives, a chronicle of disparate experiences of modern Britain by a family of regular prospect writers, filling us in on what they're thinking about each month. When we left our seven writers in March, actor and writer Sheila Hancock was reflecting on 90 years of ordinary life, while our young life, Gen Zer Alice Garnett, was determined to make friends as an adult on a family holiday. For Jason Thomas Frenillier, an expert by experience in the asylum system, a letter from the Home Office had turned his world upside down. This month, I'm delighted to introduce a new member of the Lives family, Sydney-based sex worker and author Tilly Lawless, who writes in her debut column about how a recent experience of working with male colleagues pleasantly surprised her. Meanwhile, Rebecca Lawrence, who is a psychiatrist with bipolar disorder, dusts off her running shoes and considers the benefits of exercise for mental health. For farmer Tom Martin, this month's column presents an opportunity to put to bed a perennial question. What does he make of the Amazon Prime TV show Clarkson's Farm? But let's begin with sports journalist Emma John, who argues that a new sustainable sailing competition should spark a bigger conversation about the environment and sport. I love travel as much as I love sport. Combining the two has accounted for some of the greatest moments in my life. Highlights have included a fortnight in Rio de Janeiro, covering Olympic sports I'd never watched before, a lot of late-night googling of terms like sprint kayak, and the fashioning of a long holiday to Australia around the England cricket team's Ashes tour. We're often reminded by athletes and administrators alike that sport creates community and offers a common language. It's the great leveller, they say. It's certainly a good way to connect with a new destination and the people who live there, establishing an instant bond that helps forge friendships and deepen your understanding of a place. I ought to be the last person, then, to stand in the way of travelling fans. But I can't help feeling that the sports industry, including those of us who are its most eager consumers, are willfully ignoring the biggest issue on our planet today – because while virtually every sporting organisation can talk a good game about sustainability, witness the reusable cups at the bar, behold the trees we planted in the car park, they won't confront the fact that professional sport is predicated on air travel. Everyone flies. The athletes, the support staff, the fans. They have to because international sport is, after all, international. Tennis players and golfers maintain a continual, exhausting globetrot. Formula One teams shift not only their personnel, but their vast engineering infrastructure from one Grand Prix to the next. The more popular a sport becomes, the more valuable the time of its human protagonist. Hence, Premier League footballers are frequently jetted around the UK on flights of half an hour or less. We're all complicit, even if we're sitting on the sofa at home watching. The demand that we create feeds the market and inspires all these tournaments. 
As with so many aspects of our climate crisis, it's the overall system, not just the behaviour of individuals, that makes change so hard. In January, a teenage British endurance runner called Inez Fitzgerald took the bold move of withdrawing from selection for the World Cross Country Championships in Australia. The 16-year-old wrote an open letter to British Athletics, pointing out that, quote, aviation is the most energy-intensive activity we can do, and expressing her solidarity with those suffering on the front line of climate breakdown. The response from the governing body was muted. It declined to make a statement to the media. One sport is showing the way, sailing. The first weekend in May is the grand finale of Sail GP, whose season-long calendar of races has seen the league dubbed the Formula One of sailing. As in Formula One, its drivers are the best of the best. Ben Ainsley skippers the British team. And its engineers are working at the bleeding edge of racing technology. The catamarans, which fly across the water on blades known as hydrofoils, battle around a course close to the shore, racing, colliding and sometimes even capsizing at great speed. It's the most dramatic spectator event sailing has ever invented. You'd be tempted to call it high octane, but there's no hydrocarbon involved. Sail GP was recently conceived. Its debut season was 2019. Unlike a sporting tournament with a long and involved history, it could choose its priorities. Sailors tend to be an eco-conscious bunch, and they wanted their flagship contest to be one that did no harm. So they developed sport's first ever climate-positive competition, one committed to offsetting more carbon emissions than it creates. The teams don't just compete on the water. There are two league tables, one for performance and the other for environmental impact. The latter, Impact League, measures their carbon footprint and their contribution to sustainability. The measurement is holistic rather than token. The score takes into account everything from how much meat each team is eating to the systemic improvements they fund and lobby for at home and abroad. It's a model of how sport can and should harness its extraordinary power for the benefit of humanity, not just the profit of corporate behemoths. The sailors themselves are aware of the seemingly intractable issues around travel. Their races do take place all over the world, and yes, the athletes do fly between them. Still, the spectators are largely locally drawn, and every part of the event infrastructure is designed to deliver them to and from the venue by public transport. Much of the broadcasting is done remotely to prevent travel miles to and from the races. If sport wants to be truly sustainable, it is going to have to stop doing things the way it has always done them. Maybe the rest of us will too. I was invited out to cover the Sail GP final in San Francisco, a tempting proposition that I'd have leapt at in the past. The return flight from London would have generated 2.7 tonnes of emissions. You can offset that for just over £50, although offsetting is a short-term fix that can't be guaranteed to meet its promises. Better, I decided, not to take the invitation at all. While Emma John highlights the importance of protecting our natural world, Alice Garnett reflects on the highs and lows of life in the big city. 
Londoners at once, exhausting and exhilarating. Everything and everyone moves fast. Being young here is a dizzying experience. The city thrusts you up and down between the highs of rooftop bars and lows of basement flats. So much has happened since I made the unimaginative move to the city after graduating in the summer of 2021. I've moved house twice, worked for three startups, and now, having found my feet, I'm comfortably nestled in a flat between Bermondsey and Peckham. When I step out of my front door, a vast network of buses take me wherever I desire to go. I recently had a week that crystallised my love-hate relationship with the city. It began on a Friday night when my best friend Emmeline and I were invited out by our former neighbour Cheryl, an entrepreneurial queer icon who has a penchant for bubbly and an eye for rare plants. A typical Friday night for me entails alcohol and carnage, usually several pints of lager at a messy house party. It would never usually involve champagne at the Ned. The Ned is a bank-turned-members club in central London, where the wealthy go to rub shoulders and close deals. Its 11 floors reek of new money and ambition. I felt a little out of place wearing a hot pink plunge bodysuit that I've owned since I was 17, as Emmeline and I floated after the exceedingly chic Cheryl. We sipped champagne next to an open-air pool, watching tendrils of steam drift across the London skyline while we waited to be seated for dinner. Several bottles of champagne, a platter of oysters and a lobster later, we found ourselves in the former vault of the bank, now an underground bar. We got in a couple of cocktails and huddled round a table, drunkenly playing a game of Never Have I Ever. A few drinks later, and the waiter I'd been locking eyes with unexpectedly leant down, his mouth a few inches from my ear, to say, Tonight, I'll be serving you. I was agog, aghast, but mostly I was flattered. In a bar full of successful, smartly dressed entrepreneurs, he had singled me out for some slightly twisted sexual power play. For the remainder of the evening, a strange, flirty energy simmered between us. Eventually, our fellow patrons drifted away and Emmeline and I were the last people standing in the vault. As we made our way out, the champagne fizzing through my bloodstream drove me to a small act of madness. I marched directly over to the waiter, paused, whispered, Slay, for my own benefit, and passionately kissed him on the mouth before sauntering back upstairs. And I awoke the next morning, still in my clothes from the night before, with mascara smeared across my pillow. I was back in the grim reality of my grubby home, which currently had no hot water. Several days had passed since any of us had a hot shower. This is the other side of life in London, the humbling day-to-day experience of paying an extortionate amount of money to live in a house with a faulty boiler and poor insulation. As our laundry, dishes and armpits festered, we each found our own solution. Sunny made good use of her office's showers. Lauren temporarily moved out to a close friend's house and Bill resigned himself to washing with a humble stew pot, a whore's bath, which I watched him fill from the kettle. Tuesday came around, along with my period, and I couldn't face patting myself down with a damp flannel in our inclement bathroom. Bill is a braver man than I will ever be. 
I could not bear to rock the Bella Hadid slick back ponytail for another day. So in an act of desperation, I reached out to a situationship with a plea for a hot shower. And the caveat that I really meant hot, not sexy. He graciously granted my wish. At 9.30pm on a Tuesday, I found myself upstairs on the number 53 bus, contemplating the view from Waterloo Bridge. In less than a week, I had experienced the filthy rich highs and the less glamorously filthy lows of London life. And that's the beauty of the place. While Alice Garnett wrestles with mixed emotions, Alice Goodman explores the power of prayer and why feeling spiritual can be tricky, even for an Anglican priest. All the angels pray. Every creature prays. Cattle and wild beasts pray and bend the knee. As they come up from their barns and caves, they look up to heaven and call out, lifting their spirit in their own fashion. What more need be said on the duty of prayer? Even the Lord himself prayed. That's Tertullian, the Carthaginian theologian, writing in the second century of the Common Era. Not a saint, but a great man of faith. And here I am, the person who prays in this place for these people. I'm not the only one, thank God. There are people praying all around in the privacy of their homes. However, I'm the one who's ordered and obligated to pray for the villagers and the people here, and to lead them in prayer in the churches. People stop me on the street and ask for prayers for themselves or for people they love. I'm infinitely grateful to have the obligation, because otherwise, frankly, I wouldn't consider myself remotely suitable for the job. There are deeply spiritual people all around, but I'm not one of them. I'm easily distracted and tethered with a thousand Lilliputian guy ropes to the earth. I've been praying all my life and still pray as I did when I was a child. A friend identifies as deeply spiritual and says she spends hours in silent adoration. And I can't help thinking of the deli scene in When Harry Met Sally. I kick that thought aside and go on praying. Every morning it's the words of the office that wake me up before the coffee. The night is past, and the day lies open before us. Let us pray with one heart and mind. Then the rubric, silence is kept. The silence is part of the prayer. It's a moment, as long a moment as can be tolerated, of listening before we then turn to giving thanks for the gift of a new day and open the book to that morning's appointed psalm. After the set parts of the service, there are the post-it notes, prayers for the schools, the hospital, the care home, and for each and every person who has asked for our prayers, along with those who have no one to pray for them, and those whose circumstances we can't get out of our minds, such as Jason Thomas Fournilier, who wrote a moving comment, who wrote a moving column in the April issue of Prospect about the rejection of his asylum appeal. We'll pray for the nation, the world and the church. My former curate, Father Miles, never hesitated to ask the Lord to confound the schemes of the wicked, and now I do too. I say we, because there's often someone with me when I pray the morning office but also because these prayers are joined, we believe, by the whole church in time and in eternity. 
The Psalms are the prayers of the Church and of Jesus, as well as making up a large part of the Jewish services I grew up with. Just about everything you might be feeling can be found in the Psalms, which gives you permission, if you need it, not to airbrush your devotions. Why are you so full of heaviness, O my soul, and why are you so disquieted within me? Right now it's because Anna, the vicar of St. Bennet's in Cambridge, has died suddenly at 44. The day after her death, I went into town for the midday mass at her church. Lots of other people had the same idea. All the extra chairs were deployed. It was what's called a said service, that is, a fully spoken service, which was good. Nobody was up to singing apart from a baby at the back. After communion, after the blessing, came the dismissal, but nobody moved. And I felt something like a high-pressure system of love and grief, moving outwards, carrying the common prayer of a hundred or so people towards the world and towards God. Tertullian says of such moments, No longer does prayer bring an angel of comfort to the heart of a fiery furnace, or close up the mouths of lions, or transport to the hungry food from the fields. No longer does it remove all sense of pain by the grace it wins for others. But it gives the armour of patience to those who suffer, who feel pain, who are distressed. It strengthens the power of grace so that faith may know what it is suffering for the name of God. Wittgenstein whose religious views were as profound and as odd as Tertullian's, scribbled in his notebook while on the Eastern Front. What do I know about God and the purpose of life? To pray is to think about the meaning of life. For Tom Martin, Clarkson's farm offers a useful education to the public on farming, but he warns that the industry should be cautious about getting tied up with Jeremy Clarkson's controversial personal brand. I can tell when people are about to ask the question. It's often near the end of a conversation. They shuffle a little and an air of discomfort descends. An internal struggle takes place as their curiosity rests with their fear of offending me. But they always do ask in the end. So what do you think of Clarkson's farm? I'm ready, of course, for the question. So here's my answer in print. A reply all for those of you, including Prospects editors who might feel the urge to ask. Jeremy Clarkson has done extraordinary things for UK farming. In 20 short months, he has showcased the farmer's frustration with the weather, government, machinery, forms and administration, and most of all, sheep, that most cantankerous and errant ovine. Over the course of the first two series of the Amazon Prime video show, I think farmers have felt seen and heard in a way that they haven't felt before. At times, we even felt understood. Jeremy and Caleb encounter almost the full range of farming challenges, and they don't sugarcoat the experience for the viewer or don their own rose-tinted glasses. And Jeremy, adept at playing the fool, has asked the questions that people outside of farming want to ask but haven't for fear of looking stupid. Why do you do that? How does this work? What do farmers do all day? And what does a Lamborghini tractor look like? In the last year and a half, I have received messages and phone calls from non-farming friends who have, with one voice, said, I never knew farming was so hard. Now, don't get me wrong. 
There are certainly moments in the series that are included for entertainment, but nothing that suggests to me that the viewer is being treated to an unusually chaotic depiction of farming. All the situations and scenarios you see are also unfolding on UK farms near you. Farmers may particularly recognise the scene where Jeremy is looking through the accounts to realise that his business made £144 profit for all his labours in the last year. Furthermore, each episode rattles through issues of crop disease, mistakes and mess-ups, badgers with tuberculosis and interactions with local government, all at a pace that I recognise well. Farmers need to be vet, mechanic, botanist, bookkeeper, administrator and carpenter, and that's all before lunch. Having said this, when I spoke with a group from the Worshipful Company of Farmers just before Christmas, I argued that Clarkson's association with UK farming is a double-edged sword. The programme has been fantastic in raising awareness of our industry, but we also need to exercise caution. When linking our reputation to a powerful brand over which we have little control, we must be prepared for some bumps in the road. Rarely the Oracle. In this instance, I was disappointingly prophetic as the gaff-prone Clarkson once again put his foot in it, this time when he wrote a newspaper column that overstepped the mark with a comment about Meghan Markle. Clarkson apologised and doesn't seem to have done too much damage to himself, Amazon or UK farming, but now we're once bitten, twice shy. I'm still on board with the show very much, but nervous about what he might do next. But what has delighted me the most about Clarkson is that over the last couple of years we've witnessed a growing love affair. Out of the macho motorhead who for years had little time for the environment or any terrain not coated with tarmacadam, there has emerged a soft-hearted gentleman with a love of his land. He clearly enjoys his farming, cares about those he works with and has a passion for his animals and the soils that he stewards and it is the story of this growing love that has connected with huge numbers of viewers and that best reflects the 400,000 or so immensely dedicated people working in agriculture in the UK. As a psychiatrist, Rebecca Lawrence often advises her patients to get exercising, but finds it hard to follow her own advice. Last week, I bought myself some running shoes in what was supposed to be the final step before I relaunched my running career. Career may be a slight exaggeration. I'm no athlete. But several years ago, like many other exercise novices, I pounded the streets doing the Couch to 5K challenge. I continued running for a while afterwards and felt better for it. Sadly, I never reached that blissful zone that runners talk about, but running became less painful. Now, as I look at my box-fresh trainers, I regret that I gave it up. I am small of stature and not very well coordinated. Maybe that's why I never found a competitive sport in my youth that suited me. In fact, I considered myself bad at sport, which discouraged me further. Over the years, I've tried various forms of exercise, from swimming to cycling to going to the gym. I've even tried lifting weights. I'm quite self-conscious, which has impeded my progress in all these sports, but my bigger problem is actually getting to a leisure centre. If I lived next to one, maybe I would manage to go more often, but I live in a city that is hilly, cold and windy. As a psychiatrist, I am delighted when my patients bring up exercise as something they plan to do to maintain their health. However, it's harder when a patient is, like me, not a natural exerciser. 
I work with a fantastic occupational therapist who gets gym passes for people. Perhaps we should also organise for people to be accompanied to the gym, at least initially, as they will then be much more likely to carry on going. Sometimes I think that my problem is that I've never discovered my true sport and that when I do, I will enjoy it in its entirety. When I'm more honest with myself, I think I'm just a bit of a slob. Ultimately, I know I need to choose the activity that is least unpleasant and force myself to do it because I strongly believe in the benefits of exercise, particularly for those of us with mental health problems. I'm also taking medication that has made me gain weight in the past. Drugs for mental disorders are particularly bad for this side effect. I hope exercise will help me to limit my weight gain and avoid a relapse in my depression. I suspect there are many people like me who know they should exercise but find it hard to initiate or maintain. When I'm depressed, I feel exhausted and even less like engaging in physical exercise than usual. I'm sure that just telling people to exercise is futile. Basically, exercise needs to be made easy and should preferably become part of your routine. I'm much less likely to skive if it just happens on my route to and from work. I'm walking more these days and feel better and quite pleased with myself as a result. But will those running shoes come out of their box? It is extremely easy to find reasons not to run, with damage to joints, especially knees, being top of the list. I know in reality that I felt much better when I ran two or three times a week. And the process is so easy. You just go straight outside. There's no need to interact with others and it doesn't take long. You can go as slowly as you like and as short a distance as you wish. I think I may have talked myself into it. And finally, sex worker Tilly Lawless notices that with male receptionists in the building, her clients treat her differently. A client said my body is like a kinder surprise, as he had no idea how much was going to await me under your dress when I let him out the front door after our booking. Walking back down the hallway, I find the boys at reception trying on new shirts printed with the name of the shop. I ask if I can have one because I think it would be camp, and they say they're for staff. I'm staff, I reply affronted, and they laugh and give me one. I've been surprised by how much I've enjoyed having men as my colleagues at this shop. I've never worked under men before. Well, I have in the most literal sense, but I haven't had men as my managers or receptionists both of which act as a liaison between me and the clients, running the adverts, answering the phones and taking the payments. The industry has been decriminalised in New South Wales since 1995, but brothels and parlours in Australia are largely run by women, partly because historically there were laws against men profiting from the prostitution of women. And also because there's a path from working girl to madam. When women begin to age out of selling a service with their bodies, they transition organically to selling services with other people's bodies. This can be both because of their knowledge of the industry, but also because they may be discriminated against in other industries. Their resume is found lacking. Because of the spectre of the pimp that looms large in all discourse about sex work, I thought that having a gender dynamic between myself and my management could only be negative. I feared it would heighten the sometimes exploitative and unbalanced relationship I've had with receptionists who aren't technically my bosses, but behave as if they are. Some receptionists feel entitled to threaten and verbally abuse working girls, stuck in a grey area between independent contractor and employee, with the added weight of stigma, 
you're often left exposed to the worst kind of petty tyrant. Having also worked at places where a distant male boss only popped in occasionally to creep on the new girls, where the woman manager warned us of his impending arrival and tried to steer him away from us, I assumed that any man in the sex industry was automatically out for sex. I thought that they could only be worse than the worst woman managers I had experienced. After working with male management now for two years, in comparison to nine years with women, I can say there are two unexpected benefits to having a male receptionist. Firstly, the clients behave better in the room when the receptionists are men. I had never considered that just as there is a gender dynamic between clients and workers and workers and reception, so there is between clients and reception. And there is no doubt that clients are loath to be difficult with me when there is a threat of a couple of big men 20 metres down the hallway. Secondly, there is less emotional manipulation from them than I've had from women managers. One of the beautiful things about the sex industry is the accelerated intimacy and solidarity that is often fostered in a work environment where all the workers are women. However, some underhand receptionists will use this to pressure you into shifts or clients you don't want to take on. They play on your sympathies and loyalty, pretending you are part of a family, when at the end of the day you owe a workplace nothing, when you have none of the protections of an employee. None of this is to say that men can't be bad managers or are better than women. The best managers that I have formed the closest relationships with have all been women. But it is interesting to discover that, in sex work, like with most things, gender tells part of the story, but not all of it. I am grateful to find out that I can have a considerate and professional manager of any gender. Thank you so much for tuning into our Prospect Lives podcast. Listen out to hear more from our family of writers in April and tune into our regular podcast, The Prospect Podcast, every Wednesday. If you enjoyed hearing from our wonderful lives columnists, then escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of Prospect from the newsstand today. Or go to our website, where you can read writing from Matt Dancona, Natalie Tocci, Stuart Jeffries, and many more. Goodbye, and see you next time. <laughs>